The reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. This can be found on page 1147. So 1 Corinthians 5, starting from verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church. Are you, not, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Amen.
Thank you, Edwin. Do keep your Bibles open. Good evening to you all. I read this passage with some of our staff team earlier in the week, and before we chatted about it, I asked them to give me any questions that they had that just came to their mind as as we read the text together. Um, I had to stop them when we got to about 25 questions. (laughs) There's a lot going on in this passage, isn't there? It's complex and it is weighty. Uh, In a moment, we're going to pray that God would help us to understand it and feel the weight of it and uh, help us in our response to his word. Um, If it's your first time in Christchurch or you're not used to coming to the church and listening to someone talk about the Bible, uh, our normal practice here at Christchurch is we work through uh, different books of the Bible in in chunks, so we're looking at the whole of 1 Corinthians uh, on Sunday evenings at the moment. Uh, And one of the things we do at Christchurch is we Uh, We love the Bible, we really value it as God's Word, and we don't skip the difficult bits. Uh, Tonight is a difficult bit, and we're not going to skip it, and uh, we're going to get into it uh, shortly. Uh, We also think as preachers at the moment that there's a lot going on in the next few chapters of 1 Corinthians, so uh, we think we'll benefit from one or two question and answer times in coming weeks, so uh, those are planned, and we'll let you know when those are going to be. Um, be aware, so there'll be some time for questions coming. I'll be around as well after our service this evening if you have any particular questions about this passage that aren't addressed as we look at it together now. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord God, this is your word. Please, through it, would you teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness that the Lord Jesus might be honoured in our words, our deeds, and our conduct together as your people, for we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. The authority of an individual person to decide what is right and wrong for them is a value that our society holds very highly. In almost all areas of life, we hear the message You've got to do what's right for you. But I think we know deep down that any community can't function properly with everybody just doing what's right for them. There needs to be an awareness of collective responsibility for one another, be that in a family unit or in a sports team or in wider society. I think over the last couple of years, we've appreciated this responsibility more and more as we've battled COVID together. That's taken a Uh, a corporate collective responsibility. Now, faithful Christian living is also a team sport. It's a community project. As a church, we are one body with many parts. We need each other in our journey of spiritual growth. We each have responsibility for one another. We have a collective responsibility to ensure that we who profess Jesus as Savior and Lord continue to reflect what our mouths are saying with lives of repentance and faith. Another thing that's valued highly in our society is the the freedom to compartmentalize life, to divide life up into nice little boxes that we claim are completely separate from one another, that don't have any influence on one another. But then again, I think deep down we know that they do. So as much as we'd like to claim that maybe over here in our free time we can break whatever rules we we like at any time, and that's okay, it's not going to affect how we're going to be in the workplace over here or in our family life or what kind of leader we're going to be, 
We just try and keep those things separate in nice little boxes. But deep down, we know everything is connected to everything else. The church in Corinth was guilty of compartmentalizing life and of failing to take collective responsibility for their fellow church members. This failure had gone on too long in full view of everyone, and things were getting serious. And so Paul writes to them now. He instructs them in this process that we've just read, a process that is painful, but that is necessary, and it is good. It's a process of discipline that should have started a long time ago, It's a process that's going to protect this church family and safeguard its ability to communicate the truth of the gospel to those around them. We're going to spend most of our time tonight thinking about what this process is and why Paul recommends it. Uh, And then we're going to see some of the goodness of it later on. Uh, So what's going on here? Firstly, this is church discipline for serious public unrepentant sin. That's our first heading. This is church discipline for serious, public, unrepentant sin. We're going to spend most of our time unpacking that that sentence now. Uh, In particular, what we've got here is is the highest level of church discipline, if you like. It's church discipline in its final form. A healthy church will have several levels of discipline operating well amongst its members. It will have a culture, a healthy church will have a culture that makes it okay for us to challenge one another, to correct one another, to ask one another to apologize for something we've done wrong or said wrong, uh, to call one another to repent. It'll be a culture where we regularly forgive one another for sins against one another. So in a sense, at at a general lower level, church discipline is happening or should be happening in small ways all of the time, as as we do those things together, as we deal with sin together. But what's being described here is the the final form of that church discipline. We sometimes call this excommunication. It's the act of a church removing an individual from membership in that local church and participation in, in the Lord's Supper. It's not saying that this person can't come to church anymore, but it's saying that as far as that church is concerned, they, they can no longer find any evidence for that person being a Christian. They can't support their profession of faith. And that's what Paul describes here, the process in, in three places in our passage, beginning, middle, and end. Verse 2, he says, shouldn't you rather have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Uh, verse 5 Uh, It's described this process as handing this man over to Satan. And then right at the end there, verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, verse 5 sounds particularly strong to our ears, doesn't it? But as we've been seeing in Luke's Gospel on Sunday mornings, there are really only two positions you can occupy in relation to Jesus. Either you're for him and his kingdom, or you are one who is against Jesus, living life opposing Jesus. And all who do that are ultimately led by Satan who opposes Jesus the most and deceives people to oppose him too. And so in putting this person out of membership of the church, they're not 
declaring that this person definitely isn't a Christian. We can't see one another's hearts. But Paul's asking them to formally recognize that this man is not living as a Christian. And as a result, he's, he's chosen to not be treated as a Christian. One of the many questions we might have about this passage is what makes this form of discipline appropriate? When is this excommunication the loving biblical thing to do? Maybe how does this passage fit with other parts of the Bible where uh, at one end of the scale we're encouraged that, that love covers a multitude of sins. We, we should be able to uh, offer and receive forgiveness, shouldn't we? And yes, we are encouraged that and we are to forgive one another. And then if we move a bit more down the scale in a, in a stronger direction, Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 18 about a process that's to be followed when you are sinned against. And in that scenario, the mass is only brought to the church after there have been other more private attempts to address that sin with an individual and then a smaller group of people. So why the need for the last resort here in 1 Corinthians 5? Why the need for excommunication? Has Paul just gone from naught to 100 in, in no time at all, missing out all these important steps? Well, the answer is no, he hasn't done that, but rather this case is at that level precisely because the, the sin has, has got there. It's gone unchallenged by those who should have challenged it. And so they're now at a point where they can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It, it's out there because of the, the three words in, in our first heading, the fact that the sin is serious, that it is public, and that the sinner is unrepentant. So firstly, we see this sin is serious. What is it? This man, verse 1, is sleeping with his father's wife. Even in progressive liberal Corinth, this was a no-no. It's actually reported, Paul writes, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. So Paul, like an Old Testament prophet here, is rebuking the people of God for their utter failure to be a light to the nations around them. Because it turns out in Corinth, the light is shining brighter among the pagans outside the church than it is among the Christians inside the church. And so for the sake of God's name and his glory, for the sake of the people around them who need God's salvation, this needs sorting out. This is a serious sin. It's not a gray area. And it's not serious just because the people in Corinth at the time thought it was serious. No, it's serious because God's word clearly says so. So Leviticus chapter 18, if you want to read that, it clearly spells out this exact sin. And it says, do not do this. This is detestable. It doesn't belong in God's community. Anyone who does this should be cut off from God's community. And this is why I think that Paul can say in verse 3 that he's already passed judgment on this matter, on the one who's been doing this, because it's a very clear-cut case. Paul knows his Bible. He can give a clear judgment on the situation. It is clearly wrong. Paul's not being judgmental here. Being judgmental is wrong as well. It's an error to pass judgment on someone either outwardly or, or in your hearts, 
using standards that God hasn't revealed to us, just judging people by our own standards and what we think of them. That's wrong too. But it's also an error to not judge by standards that God has revealed. And so the Bible's clear that this man is guilty of serious sin. And the church in Corinth were in the wrong by not taking the appropriate action when faced with this sin. Now we might pause here and say, but serious sin can be forgiven, can't it? All sin can be forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed once for all for all of his people's sin, whether we regard it as serious or not. And aren't we as his people so thankful every day that this is true? And yes, we are. And yes, all sin can be forgiven. So it's not just that this sin is of a serious nature that is clearly wrong, that makes excommunication the right response here. Please don't read this part of the Bible and think you're going to be thrown out of Christchurch just because you're guilty of sin, even serious sin. We need to both remember uh, the gospel, the power of the cross, but we also need to fill in more of the picture of what's going on here. Yes, this sin is serious, but it's also, secondly, public. It's public. This sin is known about, and it's known about by the church. So the toothpaste is is out the tube. We're already beyond the the final stage Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 18, where the church should now be, be made aware of this. They already are aware in Corinth. So there's no point in the chatting to the person one-to-one or getting a few more people along to corroborate the the situation. The report, verse 1, has even reached Paul's ears. And Paul doesn't, notice he doesn't name the man in this chapter, but he he knows that the church knows who it is, so much so that in verse 5, he knows that they'll know who he's talking about, who to hand over for this sin when they gather. So in God's providence here, this sin was not only serious, but it was public. People were aware of it. We know that to be true, don't we? Some sins are more public than others in their very nature. If they're committed in public or they're known about widely in public, such sins are public. And that brings an added urgency, an added need for this discipline process that we have here. Because by virtue of a sin being public, there are now reputations on the line. There are people out there who are forming their understanding, forming their opinions about this man who says he's a follower of Jesus. They're forming their opinions about this church where he belongs, and they're forming opinions about the Savior they proclaim, all based on how this church family is going to handle this public sin. So this this excommunication, this public expulsion, it's not bringing anything out into the open that isn't already there. It's a necessarily public response to a public sin. So the sin is serious, it's public, and the sinner is unrepentant. This is the, the final crucial piece of the puzzle that makes the process Paul commands not just something that they might want to think about, but 
absolutely the vital right response to this situation. The man is unrepentant. How do we know this? Well, first of all, the man is doing what he is doing in the present. The way it's all described here is not described as a a past sin that this man has put behind him through repentance and faith and believing the gospel. This isn't a sin that as a Christian he's He's just battling in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a a present way of life. This is a present happening. It's apparently ongoing. So verse 1 just says, A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And the lack of any repentance from this man puts him in a different category to the rest of the church members in Corinth. Uh, We can see this if we look closely at the different descriptions that Paul uses of the man and of the rest of the church. So in in verse 11, the man's described as one who claims to be a brother, but in fact is sexually immoral. The the is is the important bit there. This is his way of life. He's, He's living this way without feeling the need to repent, to come to Jesus for forgiveness, to turn from this way of life, to battle his sin, There's none of that. There's just, he is this, present tense. He is doing this. This is the path he's on. This is his way of life. Now, all churches are made up of sinners. We know that. So why single this man out? We're all sinners, right? Well, it's true. Churches are made up of sinners. But there's an important word missing in that sentence because true churches are made up of repentant sinners. True church members are not just aware of their sin, but they're, by God's grace and in his power, living lives of repentance from their sin. In God's strength and in his strength alone, they they know the power to keep turning from their sin and turning to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. This man, however, was defined by his sin. Verse 11, he is sexually immoral. He's described as wicked in verse 13. But true followers of Jesus are not defined by their sin in this way. Yes, they, we are guilty of sin. We, we know that as Christians. But there has been and there continues to be repentance and faith in the life of true believers. So scan down verses 9 to 13 with me. Let me try and show you this. Look at the, the sins mentioned here. We've got sexual immorality, greed, swindlers, idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, swindlers. It is a lot. And then look forward with me into chapter 6. So halfway through verse 9, we're going to meet almost exactly the same list here. So do not be deceived. Halfway, chapter 6, verse 9, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Not what some of you are, that's what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this putting out of the man, this excommunicating, the removal of his his position as a member in this local church, it's appropriate for him. 
because his sin is serious, it is public, and he is not repenting at all. And so it becomes the loving, appropriate course of action for this faithful church when faced with a case like this, as it would be for us if we're seeking to be a faithful church. Repentance from sin is is just so vital in the Christian life, isn't it? Without repentance, you don't really have a Christian life. And so when faced with serious sin in the life of a church member... If as a church we're, we're convinced that there is genuine repentance, then it wouldn't be right to put that person out of membership. However, as, it, as is the case in most of life, things are not always that straightforward, are they? And part of the role of church leaders is taking a, a lead in these things, wisely weighing up evidence for repentance and how characteristic is repentance in in a person's life is is there a clear sort of just double life going on or double mindedness that such a public sin is exposed at the end of the day the key question is can we publicly affirm this person's profession of faith and their testimony as a christian do we say yes it's obvious that that person is a christian if that's the case no matter their sin They shouldn't be put out of the church. But if the answer is because of such serious public unrepentant sin, no, we we can't publicly back their profession of faith in Jesus. Then the church's responsibility to take someone out of their family is clear. Did you notice how Paul never addresses the man in question in this chapter? He's always talking to the church. It's the church's failure to act that's the biggest problem here. And Paul rightly calls them out for it. So let's go back to verse 1 again. It's reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The church is aware of behavior that is among them. It's in their midst and they're taking no action. And worse than that, they are proud, it says. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were proud of of this man's sin. They were boasting that they had this kind of, you know, the most licentious uh, sinner in Corinth. But we've already seen that pride was a big problem for this church. Perhaps its biggest problem. It gave rise to a whole heap of other problems. The church here is puffed up. It's arrogant. It loves to boast in what Bible teacher they love the best that they're following and how great they are and what their connections might be in society. But remember, the church had built nice little boxes and compartmentalized life. They'd put that bit of church over there, and they were doing well with that box over there. They were getting the best, biggest-named preachers to come and speak at their church. They were good at um, rating their sermons out of 10. They had a good time when they gathered. There was lots of food, especially if you were rich and you didn't have to work that day. But over in another box, in the same church family, serious sin was being ignored. It was being unchecked by a community that claimed to be all about Jesus. Their pride was keeping them from what was the loving biblical response to this man and his sin. 
It might be the case that this man was someone they were proud to have as a member of their church. He was quite possibly a a man with a high social standing in Corinth. He might have been a big giver to the church. Maybe he was well-connected. He was bringing lots of good things into the church's orbit by his association with the great and the good out there. So you can understand the pressure on a church family to ignore this man's sin for all those reasons. But in wanting his association more than they wanted the truth of God's word, all they were doing is publicly associating themselves with with this man's sin. So wise Christians, powerful Christians, influential Christians, rich Christians... Christians from noble birth are not exempt from such a process. No matter how much good they've done, even spiritual good, that doesn't come into it. This pride of association in Corinth had made the church blind to this man's sin. And now it was complicit in his sin. This should have brought great sadness to the congregation. What they should have done is is spelt out by Paul in verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Mourning is the right Christian response to sin. Whether that's personal mourning for your own sin or, or corporate mourning for corporate sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The church discipline for serious public unrepentant sin is sometimes necessary. It was necessary here in this case with this criteria. Mercifully, we know it's not a regular occurrence, and we thank God for that. But when it is needed, it's a good thing. And we see that in some of the verses we haven't looked at yet. Firstly, we see that this process is good for the offender. It's good for the offender. Notice there's a purpose to this excommunication. It isn't just done to leave somebody out in the cold. So verse 5 says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. See, this handing over has, has a purpose to it. It has an end goal. Up until this point, the man's sin isn't being considered serious, either by him or by the church. But by putting him out, now we're taking sin seriously. It's going to show that sin is serious. And Paul's praying that the shock of this experience will will wake the man up to his sin and lead him to to repent and, and believe the gospel again and turn afresh to Christ. That's what Paul means when he says, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So the goal of the process for the offender is is a good one. What the end goal is, is that this person might be saved from the destruction that they're heading down because they're, they're listening to their sinful flesh, they're following its desires, and they've turned their backs on Jesus and there's no repentance... The aim is that by clearly defining that, clarifying before the church 
and before, in the man's own thinking, where, where he stands, that's going to be the, the first clear step towards his ultimate salvation. He might have thought he was a good Christian by virtue of the other compartments, the other boxes in his life, but he needs to be told straight. We're putting you out of membership in the church because there is no evidence at all of your repentance from this public serious sin. We don't want you to just assume that because your name is on a church membership list that you're clearly trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. The evidence points completely against that. And so as a church, it's best that we help you understand that now so that you see afresh your, your need of salvation. And we're praying that you would turn to Jesus again afresh in repentance and faith. This process is ultimately going to be good for the offender. It's not only good for this man, but it's going to be good for the church as well, secondly. Because it's not only this man that's been affected by his sin, but the whole church has been affected by his unrepentant, serious public sin. Their life together is not how it should be because of their failure to discipline when they should have. In fact, failing to deal with this man puts the church as a whole at risk just because of the way that, that sin spreads. We know if we have a box of nice apples and we put one rotten apple in, uh, all those nice apples are just going to uh, rally around and make the rotten one all nice and juicy again, don't we? That's how it works. Well, we know it's not the case, and it's the same with sin. Sin spreads. And Paul turns to the Old Testament festival of Passover to illustrate this. So if you were to read the book of Exodus, you'll read about uh, at Passover time and how uh, the Jews were told to remove all yeast from their homes. And this was part of the, the process of the cleansing of God's people, making them ready to celebrate the Passover festival that reminded them of God's rescue out of Egypt, out of their slavery to sin. And as part of, um, part of that, they, want, they needed to get rid of anything that might corrupt the, the unleavened bread that they were going to use in that festival that they were making. And this pattern continues throughout the Old Testament as Passover is celebrated. A lot of the time it's not celebrated when Israel are up to no good. They will sin, they will reject God, and then a prophet might come along and call them to repentance, and they think, yes, we, we do need to repent. And what they do as part of that repentance is they, they clear out the temple. Uh, they realize that actually they've gone and shoved idols to other gods right in the Lord's temple, and they need to purify it, they need to purge it, they need to clear out this stuff so that they're ready to properly celebrate the festival that that made them who they are as God's people by his grace. Now, the Passover was always designed to point forward to the true and better Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus who has made us, the church, who we are by God's grace. And so, verse 8, for the church... Keeping the festival in the light of Jesus, it means cleansing the church community from any 
obvious public unrepentant sin. And it means celebrating together the cross of Christ, rejoicing in the good news that there is for sinners in Jesus, that in him we have crossed over from death to life. And there's forgiveness, there is peace with God. That's what we celebrate as a church family, as Christ Church, both when we gather and, and during the week as we encourage one another. And as it says in verse 8, malice and wickedness do not belong in, in such a community. What does belong here is sincerity and truth. Those things should mark our life together as church, sincerity and truth. Sin is like a, an infection that will spread among those who tolerate it, who accept it, who don't challenge it. And so this process that we've talked about earlier, it's going to be good not just for the offender, but for the church as a whole. And not just for the church's life together, but also, lastly, for its relationship to the world around. So this process of, of discipline, it's going to help the church in Corinth relate better to the community of non-Christians around them. So in verse 9, it seems that Paul had written to them already about this. They'd gotten the wrong end of the stick from his letter. They thought Paul meant they weren't to associate with any immoral person. And as he says in verse 10 there, well, if that was the case, you'd have to leave this world. No, Paul's clear. The church doesn't have any responsibility to judge the behavior of non-Christians in the world around us. The church's concern should be the church, taking sin seriously in the church, pursuing purity together in the church. And all this means that the whole church has a responsibility to conduct itself appropriately to the man who has been taken out of membership. So verse 11, Now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. It's clear he's got the, the man that's been talked about in his mind in that category. Now, not even eating with them, that sounds harsh to our ears, doesn't it? But remember the purpose here, remember the goal. The aim of this process has been for this individual to regain a right understanding of, of who they are, of where they are in the stakes of eternity, of what their true relationship is to Jesus Christ. And if they haven't got one, so that they might repent and be believe in Jesus and trust him fully. And so until such time as that person does repent and believe the gospel, the church family should make it clear that they don't regard them as a brother or sister in, in Christ. Not acting with them in a way that makes them think their lifestyle doesn't matter. It's tricky to get right this, and we need the Lord's help for, for all these things. It's not a call to shun somebody completely. We, we want them to hear the good news about Jesus, don't we? We want to love them as, as Christ loved us. But we also need to think carefully about how we relate to such people so that they clearly understand where they are with, with Jesus and what the church hopes they will do next. Next. 
This is ultimately good for a church's witness to the world around us. I remember being at school and having it drummed into us that whenever we were traveling to school or from school, in our school uniform, we were representing the school. We were giving people an impression of what our school was like by our behavior in that uniform. In a similar way, local churches like ours are representing the glorious gospel of Jesus to those around us. The life-changing power of the gospel is proclaimed far and wide if we are known for our repentance and faith. The life-changing power of the gospel is hidden when we tolerate serious public unrepentant sin. And so as we practice that healthy, lower-level encouragement, rebuke, challenge, correction, forgiveness, change, sharpening of one another, from the ordinary everyday right up to the more serious cases, we are, by doing those things faithfully and well, we're actually strengthening our witness as a church to those around us. We want people who call themselves Christians and that goes for me and, and you and, and anybody in the church family. We want us to, to think regularly, are, are we living as a Christian? Are we trusting in this good news? We want people to see the, the life-changing power of the gospel in action. To know the Lord Jesus as their saviour. He's the only one who can wash us, sanctify us, justify us. I'm pleased to say we're not walking through a process like this at the moment as a church family, but it's good, I think, to reflect and to think, yeah, God, God, has, God has allowed for this. He's communicated this in his word for the good of his church, for the good of those who might offend in this way, to maintain a good witness to the world around us, which means actually that there's no need for cover-ups. There's no question of a cover-up here with Paul. Far too often, I think, we hear of churches or supposedly Christian organizations covering up sin in their midst, often with well-meaning excuses. People will say, if, if this is exposed, then it will really harm the reputation of the church or this group and its witness. People might not believe in Jesus if if, if we reveal that this unchecked sin has been in our midst. Well, I hope we see that that view is entirely opposed to what God's word teaches here. What harms the church and its witness is a failure to deal with such sin. That's why we encourage a, a right biblical collective responsibility for one another. 99% of the time, it's at our ordinary, everyday relationship level. That's why we encourage uh, Christians here to commit formally to the church family uh, as a serving member, to join a faithful church family if they, if they move away somewhere else, where they can get the care and support that they need and give it to others in return. Uh, if you've not already read this um, small booklet called Membership Matters about how we do this here and how we try and uh, apply not just this passage, but what the rest of the New Testament says about belonging to a church family and our responsibilities to one another. Uh, you can find a copy in, in the rack at the back. Do uh, 
uh, grab one of those. If you've got any questions, do talk to me. Do talk to um, Shaq as well, who's singing, who's one of our oversight team who looks after uh, membership matters. I'm aware that some of us are in uh, transition at the moment as well. Maybe we're brand new Christians or we're newish to Christchurch, maybe in the process of moving from one church family to settle with another. Um, if that applies to you in any way, let me encourage you to complete that process in the light of what we've heard to tonight. Uh, even if that means settling 100% all in somewhere else, that, that's not really the important thing. But we need this level of care for one another so that uh, we're continuing to follow Jesus so that our church isn't riddled with sin and so the world around us hears the gospel clearly. We're a church that is all about Jesus. We want to help one another live for him more and more as we offer this glorious message of forgiveness and freedom in Christ and as we believe and apply that to every area of life. Let's pray and then hand over for our songs and communion. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, would you help us to truly know and believe afresh who we are in Christ Jesus by your grace. Lord, may we not be defined by who we were and our sin. Lord, keep us running to the cross, keep us running to Christ, uh, that we might live lives of repentance and faith. Uh, and in doing so, we would care for and safeguard one another and we would be good witnesses to those around us. And we ask for your help in all that, in Jesus' name. Amen.